Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. This is Pod Have Mercy. Todd, it's good to see you. I miss man, you, man. I swear, man. I just wish you. we were having coffee someplace, Me brother. Too. How you been? I've been good. Yeah, you know, like probably yeah. everybody else, it's been an odd, odd season, man. Freaky, wow. yeah, freaky. How's it for you? Because yeah. you made the uh, you made the switch too from over to the Dupree Center, right? Yeah, basically, I got out of senior administration Dude, meetings. For I was the rest afraid. Of my life. I was afraid for you. I thought I left and thought I'm going to be at that guy's funeral in the next two years. Oh, oh God! <laughs> Yo, I wrote, that's why I wrote a book on resilience, man. It was your personal journals. <laughs> so what are really, what I are you really doing was. now? What's what are you doing right now? What what's your position? I got a, I'm doing a brand new startup called the Church Leadership Institute for the Dupree Center. I basically took the work that I've been doing with change leaders for the last five years, kind of as on the part as part of what I did for the school. Yeah. And I said, now that I've finally got them through, I mean, I, I came there to do a uh, help do a change initiative thing. I said, so so now we're finally at that place where somebody's just going to have to administrate this. I don't want that to be me. So if you can, um, so Kara Powell took over my role as a VP and I said, I will gladly leave if you need me to, or I can, and Mark said, why don't you just stay and do that here? So, so actually today, actually we just on social media, we just finally officially announced, I've been doing it since September, but that's the way Fuller works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I've been working since September and in February, we finally made an announcement about it. So, well, congratulations. Thanks, thanks. Now, is it consulting or study stuff? Basically, it is. It is what we're trying to do is create a, a place to work on very specifically on the problem of how do you help church leaders be formed to lead change? Like, like, like where it's like it's killing wow. church leaders everywhere. Is the need to navigate change, disruption, change, or needing to change their churches? So, I get to work on that problem, and we do it through speaking, coaching, consulting, lead cohorts. Right, yeah, that kind of stuff. I like this guy. I know. I told you he was going to love him. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. Todd was. I, I have to whisper this. Todd was probably my f- favorite person at Fuller. I mean, <laughs> just the way you think, and then our kind of connection with Ray and theology, and then you oh, were. Man. It was just so rich and so good. I felt like they had you in an impossible job. I really did think I was going to. You know, I was. Oh, uh, yeah. I was so glad it, you to know, see. Try- I said trying to bring change to a seminary is like yeah. trying to bring change to a church, but all the choir has tenure. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like just, so it's You don't think hard. the choir it's has just, tenure? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You haven't been I mean, a pastor really, in a while. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they have their own kind of tenure. Yeah, that's but, right. But, you know, it's like, oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'm, so. I, I'm glad to hear it. So in, uh, in 2000, I did my D-man at Columbia Theological Seminary. Mm-hmm. And my advisor was Daryl Guter, who I think you oh, yeah, quote yeah, yeah. in yeah. Uh, the book. Yeah. And, of course, Gospel and Culture, and he did Continuing yeah. Conversion of the Church. Right at the end That's of my crazy. program, he moved to Princeton. But what I did is I'd done two, a merger of churches, and so I wanted to study mergers. Why, why was this one we did successful? There were no models in 2000 yeah. and whatever. And uh, so I started studying this and Daryl and Cam Murkison started getting me into, I started studying organizational culture and leadership, mm-hmm. um, change management, system theory. I got into Kurt Lewin and Edgar Schein and John Cotter and Chris Argyris <laughs> and Margaret Wheatley 
and Heifetz and everything else. And I got to the end of my uh, thing, and, and I remember uh, Daryl said, and then Cam, like, you need more Bible in this. Like my project, right? I'd done all the clinical research, study the artifacts and the narratives Jesus. and the stories and all this kind yeah, of, really. you know, the spouse theories and theories and just get all this kind of stuff of why it worked. And I had what I thought, okay, this is really good. And we've yeah. done mergers since then, even here at Chapwood. But I, I got to the end of it and he's like, yeah, you need, you need some Bible in this. I said, dude, I got plenty of Bible. I said, this is the stuff that I need. Yeah. And what I believe then, and I still believe now, because it's going to be, 15, 20 years, that exactly what you're doing yeah. is what pastors have needed yeah. and do need, yeah. Yeah. is they don't know how to manage change. They don't know about culture and the power of culture. They don't know uh, the, the pressure points, the anxiety, creatively managing tension, all that stuff. Um, I really yeah. like, talk. All right, so here's what I'm fascinated for you to riff on. <laughs> Because we could go all day on it. I want you guys to know he, this. You guys are going to be like singing "Kumbaya" on the corner no, here in fine. about thirty minutes. <laughs> we're going to be best. We're going to be best. My heart, my best heart has been strangely warm since he started talking. We're going to be. And we're going to be best friends. We're, we just. We got to get you down to Houston because we can. Because I always like to do this in, in yeah. fun context, right? When are you coming to Houston? That's I'm not very serious most of the time. Man, I mean, right, right now we're like locked down hard. Yeah. But I as soon know. as I can, okay. As as I can. We, we want you. So you wrote this book, 2015. Or at least it was published 2015. If I wrote I were, it 2013. 2013. Wow. All right. So I just remember yeah. it was published 2015. All right. A lot has happened yep. since 2015. No kidding. Um, <laughs> for people who have not read the book Canoeing the Mountains, you need to read it. The great image that you use is Lewis and Clark assuming that going out to chart the Western territories that it would look and be exactly like the East. So they took canoes and then they run into the Rocky Mountains. And you sort of build all of that about how we, we do that in life and church leadership, which is, which is a great image. Mm. Now, where you sit, pandemic, racial struggle, political upheaval. Yeah. Um, take all that good learning, pro, that you put out there in that book <laughs> and tell people what that actually looks like in real time now, how you're reflecting on all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the biggest parts is how much the world has changed since I wrote the book, right? So obviously, yeah. I mean, the, the most powerful thing is that people say, man, you wrote a book for the pandemic. No, I wrote a book in 2013. <laughs> I never would have had a chapter called The Mission Trumps if I would written it in the last five <laughs> years, right? Bye. So um, the the realize that even the phraseology we use and what has become apparent in this work is that the only thing constant about change is that it is speeding up. So we are more disoriented all the time, hmm. which means we now need to figure out how to lead in a world of disorientation hmm. when everything within our makeup wants to get back to anything that is familiar. Yeah, so yeah. the default behavior, if you just leave people alone in the midst of change is they want to run home to mama. They just want to run home. They want to run home. I just say that the root word of family and familiar are the same, right? Yeah. So if you're in unfamiliar territory, you feel like you just got abandoned and you want to run home. So watching, you know, churches go through the pandemic where the, or they're arguing over how fast they can go back to worship services that were already declining before. Yeah. We want to go back to decline. That's what I tell people. We want to go, we want to go back yeah. to February of 2020. And I remind people, yeah. February 2020 wasn't really great. 
Yeah, yeah. And especially, you know, one of the parts that's become very apparent is the way in which the issues around racial injustice have really revealed, you know, things that have been pervasive for such a long period of yeah, time yeah. that you now actually have. I would say that the, the pandemic has been apocalyptic. It's revealed what has mm. been there. And one of the things that Ronald Heifetz says that I just found so helpful is he'll say that, you know, he's got a whole article on how not to waste a crisis. And one of the parts <laughs> is the crisis, if you manage it wisely and well, there's a couple steps to that. The crisis gives you the opportunity to address the underlying issues you've not had the will to confront before. That's so beautiful. And I think some of our churches are finally recognizing if we don't deal with issues of generations and we don't deal with issues of race and if we don't deal with issues of diversity and issues about the fact that we are losing millennials and now Gen Z at a record pace, those things were not caused by the pandemic. They were there before. We just now recognize there may be churches that just won't come back from the pandemic because all those things are still going to be there unless they use this time to address it. Mm, mm. Yeah. Mm. It's almost like um, I look at what's happened in the political thing and everybody wants to point to Trump. And I tell people all the time, Trump is a symptom of something else, um, whether you liked him or not like him. And, he, and it's not a lot of people that, that, I, that I know and run with, even if they voted for him, they wouldn't say he's an upstanding person, you know, of moral character and all that kind of stuff. But I I try to tell people, you know, it's not his fault. He might've assisted, but there's other underlying things that led to what we've experienced over the the past four, I would say longer than that, that that all the political division, just like you said, there's the underlying issues with, with racism and stuff that I just think we've kind of lived in negotiated tension with. Yeah, I was working with a church last week where the guy said um, their church, their church had for years, they had a really robust ministry on a university campus. And he said, you know, there's nothing like having 600 extra young people running around to make you think that everything is fine. (laughs) And then they had some crisis with the school and those that those college students all went away. And now with the pandemic, they're all gone. He said, all of a sudden we are revealing all the cracks and all the things we have not paid attention to are now all revealed Mm -hmm. because we don't have these, you know, 600 more people, you know, all energetic young adults running around that make you feel like we're actually doing okay. When they really weren't, they, they actually had some deeper issues they needed to address. So how do you, um, it, it seems like in some ways in the church is in a panic attack, right? You know, in a yeah, sense yeah. that it's in the, in the pandemic. And so how do you, how do you calm the breathing and what, what would you as a wise guide begin to ask the church to begin to see, uh, uh, take notice yeah. of be, what, um, to begin to build capacities for? Yeah. So what's really helpful about this, this article I referred to from Ronald Heifert says it was in the Harvard Business Review in 2009, leadership in a permanent crisis. That's mm. the article. He says he's, he was a doctor. So Ronald Heifert's at a Harvard university who did all the work on adaptive leadership and his colleagues did. He was a medical doctor. He said, the first thing you got to do is you've got to acknowledge in a crisis that there is kind of an acute stage. In other words, he said, it's just like when a person is just rushed into the emergency room. So what do you got to do? You got to stabilize by time, get everybody to breathe, you know, like survive that moment. And what happens, however, is as soon as you've had a moment like that, if you've ever been in an emergency room, you know that as soon as you know you're not going to die, all you want is for them to give you back your pants and let you go home, right? You just want (laughs) to stop feeling vulnerable and you just want to get back to what is familiar. And what's hard is what leaders have to do at that moment is like, Take the moment of a deep breath and then say to everybody, 
now we're going to actually look at what got us here. Hmm. And that is really hard. I mean, it's really hard. It's, um, and, but if you can do it, you have an opportunity that you, that will help you not waste that crisis. So what leaders have to be able to do is they've got to manage their own anxiety first and foremost. Yes. Your own temptation to want it. Like you, you've got to be so convinced that going forward is going to actually be better that I'm going to actually start walking these people through this process because everything within me just wants to go home. It's just go back to normal too. get back to this, go back to what's familiar. Hmm. Yeah. There's something to be said about, um, that non-anxious presence, but I, I think there's just, you got to have some grit and resolve to just take the next step, take the next step, take the next step. And I think when you lead with people, they see that, they sense that, mm-hmm. uh, that if they see and sense you, you want to check out and you, you're not in, um, yeah. that, that's, yeah. they're already there. And yeah. sometimes yeah. you don't, I mean, in a pandemic, I'll be honest with you, you don't have vision. You know, everybody, it's, it's funny now we turn 2021, we've done our stewardship or we're in the midst of doing our stewardship. And everybody's like, okay, what's the strategic vision for 2021? What's the, what's the vision? What's strategic vision? And, um, you know, it's like what we've been doing is really trying to figure out and point to this pandemic has, like you said, it has revealed something about us that we've been dependent upon all of the noises and the distractions and the things that have basically covered up a lot of stuff inside of us. And the pandemic has stripped all that away. Mm. And so it's left us like in the wilderness, in the desert. And we don't have the same resources available to us that we, we did pre-pandemic. And so yeah. we deal with it in a lot of different ways. Some people, we've tried to help people say, all right, let's, let's, let's think about what are these doors that are opening for us? What are the things we can rely on? Because the desert has life if you know where to look for it. And that's, I think, what the church is teaching people. So for us coming out of it, it's really about identity. It's about reclaiming a core sense of identity. It's about culture. It's about DNA. It's not about mm-hmm. strategic planning, you know, um, yeah, it's um, there's an inter- really great concept that is used. I, I was whenever I'm consulting and I work with churches on this, what I always do them is say, look, adaptive change starts with the notion that you're going to need to be clear on what is essential. So you have to start with the healthiest version of your core DNA, which are your values, but they're not your aspirational values. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. If anybody gives me a should in the next couple of minutes, <laughs> we should do more evangelism. We should care about like, like, no, that isn't it. It's what we actually already are doing. What is actually our value. And, and what I love this, the Catholics talk about this as your charism. Right. So if you talk to, you know, the Catholics will talk about like the Dominicans charism is different than the Jesuits. It's different than the Benedictines. They're all Catholics. They're all orders. They've all got a reason, but their charism is different. And when churches can get really clear on, especially in a church kind of says, so what is our charism? What's our gift to the community? What Mm -hmm. is our what is the thing that would make us have any value whatsoever? I had, I had a guy from Silicon Valley look me right in the eye and said, I was talking about the seminary where I work at Fuller. And he said, you know, nobody cares if Fuller Seminary survives. Nobody cares if your institution survives. They only care if your institution cares about them. That's right. So all of a sudden now you realize, oh, we better get really clear on what is our value to our neighbor and those two things, here's what we care, here's our charism, and here's the pain point of our neighbors, and here's how we can leverage what we offer in a pain, in a world of pain that is a, that is valuable to them. And, that, and we've got to make everything about that. So 
you know, I, I work with groups who always want to bring me in to do strategic planning. And I tell them, actually, what I want to do is help you think strategically about every plan you're going to have to make in a rapidly changing world. Mm. And that means you have to have the adaptive capacity to be able to wisely adapt your core values in a changing world in a way that will keep making you more and more resilient. Mm. 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 Yeah. What about the, the, in your book, one of the things, there's a deep spiritual core to kind of your, t- you talk about this, the, the rule of life almost within mm-hmm. some of these things that then provide kind of a, a stability to this kind of changing gyroscope of the boat, right? Uh, and yeah. can you talk a little bit about that, about how, because yeah. it seems to be some of the pathway out of the panic, some other way to see the future mm-hmm. that is more compelling, mm-hmm. as you say, than the past, right? Because mm-hmm. we're still in a, I think, at least in, 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 in the States, we're still in this place, if we could just go back to Egypt, you know, oh, yeah. where there was honey cakes back there, dude. You know, flesh pots. Right. I mean, right. come they on. They killed our children, but we had leeks and onions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Give me more onions, please. <laughs> exactly. Right? right. But but the compelling yeah. the compelling nature of the spirit that says, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I'll I'll lead yeah. you into these places. Yep. So what about the spiritual life? Then what are some of the things that yep. you would say to a church that say, hey, these are the things that would be really helpful to kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, calibrate yeah. and to get serious about as you move forward in this this world. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting that you asked that, Matt, because, you know, I spent the better part of five years traveling around the country and to four other countries talking about canoeing the mountains. Mm-hmm. Every single place I went, someone said to me, you know, the thing I really got to spend more time talking about is this whole notion of sabotage. Like, like sabotage, the chapter on sabotage and yeah. canoeing the mountains would be was the most compelling chapter. And because I realized sabotage is really the soul sucking thing. Mm. We're, we, if we wake up in the morning and see the world has changed and there's something within most leaders that go, you know, sign me up for such a time as this, let's go for it. It's when you turn around to the people that you believe are going with you and they go, oh no. Hell no. no. no." (laughs) Yeah. Let's go. Let's like, oh no. I mean, I mean, literally like the imagery you, you mentioned, like, you know, the the Israelites, it's like literally six Uh, weeks after the Red Sea, like the greatest (laughs) miracle until the resurrection, six weeks. Six weeks is what it took them to go. You know, I didn't know we were camping. Oh my god! I want to glamp. Right. And so you realize it took six weeks for them to blame Moses again and want to go back. And so where leaders are just dying. And so what the new book I wrote called Tempered Resilience yeah. is really about the formation practices leaders need to develop the tempered resilience, the wise. uh, strength Mm. to be able to withstand resistance. And there are spiritual practices in the middle of that, that are, that I've said that you have to rethink your spiritual practices, your rule of life for this challenge. And that everybody does that. We don't, we often don't talk about that, but everybody has a different set of spiritual practices for different challenges in your life. Just, you know, you know, ask anybody who had a nice, quiet morning, quiet time until they had young kids. (laughs) (laughs) Then it's the eating meditation from there on out. Exactly. Exactly. Like, like, oh, I I said, you know, when I, when I became a a Christian in high school through Youth for Christ, they told me, you know, read your Bible every day, pray every day, go to church every week. That was great. I become a pastor and I'm thinking, I'm going to need to do a lot more Bible study than read my Bible every day. If I'm going to preach every week. And my wife would say stuff like, look, you, you need a spiritual practice about not being out every night, yeah. like w- doing church work. Like, what is it about your need to make everybody happy? That is going to ruin our marriage. 
And so now you start creating a set of practices that are built on deeper study of the scripture, better connection to my family. Those become a rule of life. So now when you're talking about time like this, I'm going to work with leaders on stuff like you need to be able to learn as you go. Yeah. You need to cultivate teachability. So what are the spiritual practices that are going to help you to learn? Right. You need to be with people through loss. What are the practices that are going to help you to listen and attune? And, and there's more. As we go. You know, uh, <clears throat> this guys he's just better and more motivated and smarter than I am because all the things <laughs> you're talking about, when you start, when you start going down this road, of understanding culture and management and systems. You know, uh, I remember when I read Jim Coll uh, Collins, Good to Great, right? Mm -hmm. And do you remember he talks about this level five leadership and level four, oh, yeah. and he had all these business leaders and they said, okay, but um, what gets you from level four to level five? And if I remember correctly in the book, he basically said, I can't answer that question for you. I can identify the difference measurably, right? But I can't tell you what gets you from there. To the other. So that always struck me as like, right, what is it that gets you? And I always thought for me is rooted in spirituality because if you go to all these great business tomes or these uh, organizational tomes, whether it's, um, you know, singing, he talks about personal mastery, right? Or if you go to, I don't know if you've ever read a book called The Leadership Code, the guy in Michigan, but he talks about the thing, but he, he centers around these four categories, but then there's, there's a fifth, he calls it like personal proficiency. And these are like mm. secular books, right? That right. are written for the business world, but they're all rooted yeah. around this sociological, like Kurt Lewin, it's all birthed out of this family system stuff. It's all yeah. rooted in spirituality. So I always thought contemplative leadership was kind of that vain. It's how do you ground yourself as a leader spiritually, whether you're a pastor or whether you're a business leader. So now I have to binge read another Bolsinger <laughs> book this weekend, uh, the Resilience book. All right, I'm going on that one next because it sounds like exactly, it really does. It sounds yes. exactly like what has been a passion of mine to think about what grounds you Mm -hmm. When you lead, what, what is that personal proficiency? Yeah. How do you yeah. develop that personal mastery? How do you, how do you build a non-anxious presence and how do you train people to go or move or graduate from a level four to a level five type yeah. of a leader? Well, you know, it's interesting you use the word grounded. So in, <clears throat> in tempered resilience, I talk about a grounded character is the first thing that has to happen. That's and what I mean by that is you have for people to be able to have the ability to lead change, especially in the face of resistance, you have to be grounded in something other than your success at leading change. Uh. Mm. The big difference for me for the level four and level five is there comes a moment when you say, more important than whether That's I am successful is that I am living out who I'm supposed to be. And, and I think that what we have in the scriptures, I mean, the place you see this is in the life of Jesus, right? Before he's done a miracle, yeah, he's yeah, changed yeah. any water to wine, before he's <laughs> cast out any demons or converted to power, he shows up at a river and he is told, you are my beloved in whom yeah. I'm well pleased. Yeah, Like I'm pleased in you already. And so for most leaders, if they're not grounded in something other than their successes, achievements, mm. they are going to become too brittle to be able to lead change. And so it has to come, as Matt was talking about, has to come rooted back in an identity that is really grounded in the deep love yeah. of God um, that then allows you then to lead people forward because you are more committed to being faithful to God than you are to your own success. 
Which is super interesting to me because you then talk about also, which is it feels ca- counterintuitive when we're talking about all this kind of organizational leadership stuff, that then it really comes down to the quality of your relationships. Like you, you mm. talk oh. about attending to those things, right? That we can yeah. we can have all the right plans in place and the vision, but but really the the substructure of all of that is contingent yeah. upon the quality of the relationships that we're investing in and the way that those are happening, yeah. which yeah. I think. And this yeah. is yeah. So so the interesting part about this is so in the in the new book I use it's a blacksmithing metaphor yeah. is what it is. Yeah. Um, there's a the blacksmithing community in Los Angeles <laughs> in a neighborhood that has not had a horse there in a hundred years, <laughs> but there's a bunch of folks. Welcome who to California. <laughs> exactly right. There's a whole bunch of folks who are doing this blacksmithing, and one of the parts is you know there's all the different parts that I talk about as the as the steel is turned into a tempered tool that's the entire metaphor uh, the 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 anvil is the center of it and for me the anvil <laughs> is your relationships and the key to a a leader who is able to withstand the heat of leadership is that you actually can put that something hot on an anvil that is so heavy it can bear the heat that's good and so what it needs is you know i would say you need partners you need mentors and you need friends you need all three you partners are people who care as much about the mission as you do if you get off track, your partners or the people who look at you and go, I don't know, we're about this. We're yeah. about this cause. This is really important to give our lives to. Don't don't lose it. Mm-hmm. Your partners are the people who are, that's who your partners are. Your friends are actually the people, I would say my friends are the people who care about me more than they care about the mission. They're the people who walk up to me and go, hey, Todd, congratulations, you got another book out. And I go, I know, you want a copy to read it? And they go, no. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Why would I do that? <laughs> Oh man, I'm just happy for you. You're yeah. my friend and you worked hard on that book. Uh, right? That's great. Your mentors are the people who care. I said, my mentors are the people who care about me for the sake of the mission. Hmm. And with a big issue in the middle of all that is most leaders don't have any of those. Yeah. yeah. They realize they lead alone. <clears throat> they don't feel like there's anybody who cares just about them. Maybe their spouse, maybe their family. Yeah. And they are too embarrassed to ask for help. I'm like, I said, I actually said, I said to a Methodist bishop once, I said, if I was a bishop, and I'm not a Methodist, but he laughed in my face. I said, if I was a bishop, I would say, if I'm your bishop and you try to lead anything without a spiritual director, a coach, or a therapist, I'm going to consider that leadership malpractice. That's good. Yeah. If LeBron James needs a coach, you need a coach, mm. like for crying out loud. And I learned that actually from my wife, who was a marriage and family therapist, who told me, yeah. you know, if I make mistakes without supervision, the state of California holds me more liable. I have 15 clients and I need supervision. You have 1,500 members, Todd, and nobody ever asked you. <laughs> and so it was that confrontation that began wow. to make me think about the fact that the problem with loneliness and that, that relationships are actually a spiritual commitment, yeah. a spiritual practice. Well, and part of the problem of, I think with like stage understanding development in terms of stages is that leaders or people will have those folks in certain stages, but we're never, uh, in a sense, like called as a, as leaders to cultivate those in each stage and for yeah. folks to say, who are those, the, who is that collection? Who's that in that tribe for you? Right. So now we have like we have folks on staff that are workers, co-workers, but really then Mm -hmm. cultivating on the staff folks that were our friends that could hold us to the mission and those things, you know, uh, mentor those. I think that's that's a great insight. 
It's a great yeah. insight. There's one of my favorite books that I read for Tempered Resilience was um, Lessons on Leadership by Jonathan Sachs. He was mm. the chief rabbi of London. Yeah, yeah. He just passed away this I love last him. year. And that commentary <laughs> is a commentary on the Torah based on thinking about adaptive leadership. It's stunning. Mm. And he has these insights like the time that Moses gets most angry at the Israelites and he gets so angry that God says, Hey, you're not going to go into the promised land <laughs> was right after like, like you, you did it. You finally blew it. Right. It's right after Miriam dies. Oh. He loses his sister. Oh. And it's at that moment oh. that he also then ends up losing his calm. Like, like yeah. you, you use the phrase non-anxious presence. I, I happen to believe that the only really non-anxious people are dead. Like my, <laughs> my goal is like, my goal is just to be the least anxious presence <laughs> in the room. <laughs> or at least to manage and, your anxious yeah, presence. Right, 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 right. At least to be profoundly aware of it. But to just think about that notion that's brought out that like Moses loses his sister and then he loses his cool. Oh my gosh. So it brings us back to the amount of relationships we need, the, yeah. the cultivation of depths of relationships and the different compartments, I think, that help us get clear on the kinds of people we need in our lives. A big mistake, you know, that many church leaders make is they put their friends on the church board. You don't want your friends on the church board. That that ends up in being abuse or you, you yeah. don't want people on the church board who care more about you than they care about the church. That's a mistake. That is a that's abuse ready to happen. You need the difference between who are the people on your church board, who are your partners and the people in your life who are your friends. You know, as I think about that, just in my own personal experience and pastors that I know, I'm thinking particularly as leaders who are pastors, Mm -hmm. is trust. Um, It is really difficult, and I wouldn't say just for Methodists, because the thing about Methodist itineracy, of course, all that's going to blow up soon and be gone. But at least in my experience over the past almost 30 years, is you know, other Methodist preachers are people you're in competition with. You're competing for the same jobs. You're competing for the same promotions. And, of course, yeah. then you're in a church where these are your parishioners. And can mm-hmm. you really yep. be friends with them? I mean, you want to. You hope yep. to. Yep. But there's yep. always that differentiation there between someone who's a shepherd of your flock and then you have people you grow up with and they're there. But I think for, for pastors, is a lonely profession because— yeah. I agree with you 100%. You have to have mentors and partners and friends. But I think pastors lack a sense of trust to be able to develop and find those. Because honestly, pastors have been burned a lot by all of those relationships. (laughs) Um, And, and, you know, it's hard. Think about being in, in in a job where you're supposed to lead and be authentic and vulnerable and yet the moment you're authentic and vulnerable, everybody goes, God almighty, I didn't realize Dear he Lord. was so messed up. I'm not really sure he should be the pastor <laughs> of this church if he has those thoughts or those ways of living. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, yeah. It's almost a, it's it's profa- difficult. It's profoundly hard. Yeah. yeah. But I think that's, um, if we're going to be, <clears throat> I think the, the way we come out of this too, this thing that real, really resonates with me, I mean, we're a larger church. We have multiple campuses and, and worship communities. But the thing is your church gets larger, you begin, you become very dependent upon programming. Mm. You know, it's yeah. the programming. So you cast this wide net, you try to bring in a lot of people and you say, hey, we have this, 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 and you point, try to point that crowd into a directive 
uh, to something smaller, well, it's kind of like your click rate on your email. You know, you get like, except, you know, on an email, you might get 30% open rate. But on this kind of stuff nowadays, you get like a 1% return rate. It's like 1% of person shows up and go, hey, I'm interested in that small group. Well, you're the only one. So it's going to be a really small group, right? Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, churches that are looking at going back to, and, and this has been happening for a long time, but mainline churches have struggled with this. We haven't done well because our model was sort of the mega model, come to the worship service, and then we'll try to filter you down. <laughs> but the, the newer models over the last 20, 30 years is like smart, start with the small groups and community. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, we're returning to a missional church. You know, Guter, this death of Christendom has been dead for a long time, and yet we have refused to see that. So I think this whole idea of what it means to be a missional church in the world uh, it's got to be a big part of our identity coming out of the pandemic. And I think we each have yeah. to figure out what that looks like. But there's going to be some some commonality, I would think, among all churches in our unique context of the United States of America being the church. And I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I know it's going to be rooted in remembering who God is, remembering who we are, remembering that we are stewards and living in a a sense of community that's deep and rich and personal and connected. Yeah. 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 It's um, one of the things, you know, that in the nineties people used to quite quote Wayne Gretzky, you know, like skate to where the puck is going (laughs) and the visionary leaders are the people who could seem to predict the future. I said, you know, the problem with today is there's four pucks going in four different directions. (laughs) So it's, it's kind of a waste of time to predict anything as disruptive as we are. So the answer isn't to predict it is to prototype. Hmm. It's to actually get good at doing small experiments. Yes. I mean, you talked, we talked about, small I said batch. the last, you know, the last generation was about small groups. I think now it's about small projects, small yeah. experiments. That's really great. Cause it's, it, cause one of the things we know is that trust is actually built through work together. I mean, Margaret Wheatley talks about this, like you can't predict the future, but you prepare for the future through the quality of your relationships. And the only way to really develop good quality of relationships in something like a missionary agency is by working together. Mm-hmm. So small projects doing small experiments, I would say just to, you know, create learning communities of increasingly diverse voices who are courageous about facing resistance. And then they experiment their way forward. Mm. And what you discover is the future is going to be discovered as we walk into it. It's not going to be some massive strategic plan that someone's mm-hmm. figured out. It just isn't. I mean, almost every, I mean, it just, it, 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 all of those things are being disrupted. And so you don't want to bank on your ability to predict the future. Um, I mean, just, I, yeah, it just won't work. <laughs> not so. anymore. Somebody emailed me today yeah. and said, Hey, so a bride wants to know November. Can we fill up the sanctuary and can she have a choir? Yeah. And I yeah. said, November. I said, uh, okay, let me, let me, g- give me five minutes. Out. Let me go get my crystal ball and yeah. I'll pull yeah. it out and I'll let you know exactly what November is going to look like. I used to think I knew what every November would look like. Right. Yeah. And yeah. now we live in a day where it's like, uh, November, I have no idea no what idea. November looks like. Yeah. Yeah, I just, um, I said on March 13th last year, I was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, talking to a group of church planters. I got on the plane in Sioux Falls in Denver, United Airlines handed me a Clorox wipe. 
and said, hey, in our efforts to keep you safe, we want to make sure that you take the Van Zemmers as Clorox wipe and wipe down your seat. And I'm thinking, they keep thousands of people safe at 30,000 feet, and they're handing me my own Clorox wipe? I have no idea what this thing is, but this coronavirus <laughs> thing is going to wipe out everything, right? <laughs> By that Sunday, every mm -hmm. church I knew had done, gone online, yep. and everybody was doing like Facebook Live. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Right. Like totally disrupted. I lost 15 speaking engagements in the next week. That For me, that was about half the year. I was I, was, wow. I would travel 100,000 miles a year, traveling 30 weeks a year to, to speak. 15 speaking engagements were gone. I didn't know what I was going to do. By the end of 2020, I had spoken 95 times to 25,000 people on this thing called Zoom. And I had never done a <laughs> Zoom call before March 13th. Yeah. So if you had told me on March 10th, that this that that I was going to actually speak to more people in 2020 than I did in 2019 and 2018 combined, and I was never going to get on a plane. Right. I wouldn't have even known how to think right. about that. Right. And, so, and the interesting so, yeah, thing, I don't know what I don't know what November is going to be like. Yeah. <laughs> but and the fascinating thing about that, what you're saying is, in March for the first couple of months of this thing, we weren't even doing Zoom. Yeah. There was nothing right. happening. Yeah. Right. So so that's even a few months after that. Then all of a sudden, it's like. It went on steroids. It's like I could yeah. be everywhere at one time. Yeah. And I remember, and this is, this goes back to you know, the early part of our conversation. Almost every pastor I was working with or working with said to me, "Yeah, we all you know went online on Sunday. As long as we don't have to cancel Easter, mm -hmm. right. like the worst thing we could think of is that we'd have to cancel Easter, as if like Easter we couldn't celebrate it unless we were all together with the lilies and the choirs and yeah. the services, right?" I was sort that was the easiest decision in the world for most pastors to make yeah. that that had no conflict at all what's been really hard is all the arguments about starting up yeah, again yeah. or what we're going to look like or what we're going to do i mean every church i know is in conflict i mean just conflict about that yeah. is way more taxing it, than it, what the conflict we had in march Todd, that seems a bit like what you're saying there seems a bit like a distraction to the things that we don't want to look at in some ways. If I can argue about the time of where we open, in a sense, like what we're being called, though, is to this grander scheme of, of looking and observing and noticing where we are and what are we to do? What does it mean to be faithful yeah. going forward in the future? And um, and I love the, the, the idea about these small batch or smaller kind of experiments that, that then really allow the church to take take its rightful place in the body in a sense to really begin to perform yeah. uh, it, um, itself in the world in in more creative and adaptive ways and that mm -hmm. um, folks like John and the leadership of the church then kind of set that stage but we're really yeah. then cultivating almost um, a laboratory for people to say you know yeah. um, well and Russell's a lab rat I mean this is I the am. prototype king right <laughs> yeah. so yeah. the reason right. the reason that you know we, we brought this is him why God put us together we brought though. him back because you, you know, I, I can do here. my role, and then I'm like, I say, all right, all right, pro. Here's the credit card. I'm like, hold Why don't my you beer, go prototype go. something over there, exactly. and let's yeah. just see what well, happens. You know, one of my favorite one, uh, in Google. There's a guy named Astro Teller, <laughs> Astro Teller, and he started Google X. And Google X is all their experiments, yeah. and their entire thing is this: you take on an experiment, and whoever can break their project the first wins. Wins. 
I love that. Like it's like 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 you and so like you run as hard as you can at the hardest thing of the problem. And you try to break your problem. Why? Because then you can go on to the next thing. So they literal. So the idea of thinking about this is, and, and this is one of the hardest things for those of us who've been senior pastors to get in our heads. We all used experiment to mean, hey, would that work? That's not the answer. The question you should be asking is, what did we learn? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So everything's going to be, these small projects are not going to be, hey, let's figure out the magic bullet. It's going to be, what are we going to learn mm. so that we can then build on the next thing and build on the next thing? And in the process of learning, we're going to have to be vulnerable. We're going to have to trust each other. We're going to have to trust in God. We're going to have to enter into you know, practices that allow us to learn and listen and lament. I mean, the, the practices in the book that I have are learning, listening, looking, and lamenting. Mm -hmm. Because resilience comes out of teachability, attunement, empathy with people. Attunement mm. actually helps people change. Yeah. Adaptability that comes from actually looking and experimenting, like getting yourself out of the melee and looking down on it from the top. And then lamenting because every single place the gospel is going to go forward. It's going to go into some place of pain. That's right. And if you don't start That's in right. the brutal reality, <clears throat> you actually don't have anything to offer. So you've, so the, until we discover how the practice of lament is actually the key to our innovation and our, our mission, uh, we're going to be stuck. Yeah. You know, one of the things I've, I've heard um, John say in the last few months, and then picking up from some of what you have written about is that in some ways it is the, um, we are negotiating change, but we're really helping people um, grieve, move through loss, mm. because what oh. people are wanting to go back to and retract into is the past, which is not there anymore. It's a loss, right? Yeah. Oh, and yeah. so it seems that we are in some ways called to be these kind of like spiritual ninjas that are helping folks grieve and, and yeah. in yeah. that process, not get stuck and to say, yep. there's something, there's something beyond this, you yeah. know? I, we say to pastors, you know, so the very first principle about adaptive leadership is people don't resist change. They resist loss. Mm. That's from Heifetz, mm -hmm. that people just lost. That's good news, actually, for us, because it means the people we're with are not being stubborn and bullheaded. They actually have something of incredible value that has really shaped their life. Yeah. And we know how we've all been trained how to help people deal with loss. That's one of the reasons why every clergy person has to go through CPE or clinical pastoral education, right? How do you walk with people through death and loss? What we haven't been trained on is how to take that thing that we know how to do with a person. I mean, the three of us, we've all been in the room with people in the worst possible scenarios of mm -hmm. loss. We've never learned how to do that with a community mm -hmm. who is experiencing loss and they're experiencing loss because we're the leader and we told them they had to. So they're mad at us. Mm -hmm. But once you realize that they're mad at us, is really not personal. Yeah. It's really the way it works. Then you can actually go back and go to your training, which is how to help people go through loss. And if we realize how profound the loss is for people and that we have to keep going, then at least we've got our bearings. You know, I always say that if you, the whole story of Canoeing the Mountains was they were doing a water trip. They were water <laughs> guys. <laughs> right? If you, they hand built, they invented a boat for that trip. If you're the person who came on the trip and you invented the boat that is going to take you forward and we get to the Rocky Mountains, it is ridiculous for you to keep paddling if there's no water. Can you just but imagine the person, shame, the guy, this guy gets there and he goes, man, I, I innovated a brand new boat for this thing. 
Yeah. And and now we say to you, hey, here's what we need with your brand new boat. Um, we're gonna need to burn it because we're, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're gonna yeah. go through snow. Yeah. We're gonna go through we're gonna burn it. We might even make some yeah. snowshoes out of it. But exactly. And so for those people, it's it's an identity thing. Yeah. If you're the guy who's the yes. expert navigator, water navigator, and now you're just the dude carrying the luggage, that's a really different change of your identity. That's right. And that's yeah. what a lot of our people are experiencing yeah. right now. Yeah. And and I also think that sometimes leadership says, well, there's water just ahead. So let's keep walking with the same kind of stuff and the same weight that we have because it right, we can outlast this in a yeah. sense that yeah. we have to be able to drop it and say, let's we have to reorient ourselves, be open to that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one great. of my favorite stories, Matt, in the that I didn't even talk about very much in Canoe in the Mountains, because there was so much more he could could talk about, <laughs> but was that, you know, eventually Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery do get into a river. They do find the Columbia River, but they have to go through the mountains to get there, and they have to depend upon the Shoshone to get them there. Mm. So they so they are way closer than they were before. They've gone through something they couldn't imagine going through. They're way humbler. They had to ask for help, mm. starting with Sacagawea, a teenage Native American nursing mother. Like they had to literally depend on her for help. Um, I just always say that whenever you think of the core of discovery, remember she did it too. And she had a baby, right? <laughs> they went through the Shoshone had to help them. They get through the river, they get through the mountains, they come to the Columbia river and the Nez Pierce showed them how to make a new canoe that would be better for the river. Wow. So the, wow. they didn't lose their capacity to, to water navigate, but they had to learn as they went. They had to be humbler. They had to be kinder. I mean, they just became a different kind of people while they were on that trip. Now, all kinds of things happened later, and they are men of their era who made huge mistakes in other ways and opened up all kinds of things that are fraught with our indigenous friends, which we need to own. Yeah. Um, but there was an amazing <laughs> metaphor there of how they had to transform by going through the mountains mm -hmm. that I think is really important for the church. Yeah. Right? Well, Todd, as we wrap this up, I want to be faithful of your time too, but... As you look ahead, what is so? so um, I, I've already put my crystal ball up. Um, it's I've used <laughs> it storage. enough today. What do you see for the church in the United States, particularly? I know around the world, different contexts and culture, but mm. as we start to come out of this, um, what do you see are the biggest opportunities in front of us and the biggest challenges, just to, from your vantage point? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, using the idea that you can't predict, but you can prototype what I would say, what I'm learning along the way with a whole bunch of people learning uh, is um, the deepest adaptive challenges of the future are going to be the ones that are re being revealed to us right now. So we are going to have to take seriously that for the church to be of any relevance and any impact in the world, it has got to take seriously the issues of race the issues of generational divides, the issues of diversity. We are, you know, mm -hmm. we are not leading the world in uh, demonstrating the picture of the of what the kingdom is going to look like in Revelation five, and mm -hmm. we have to take that more seriously. Those things have come up, so now we're going to have to learn as we go and prototype our way forward. So I think that anybody who has the capacity to experiment and learn as they go. Uh, the learners inherit the earth, <laughs> Eric Hoffer said, and the learned find themselves beautifully equipped for a world that no longer exists. Mm. And we are going to need to be learners. And I do think that the future is going to be about both a combination of high tech and high touch. I would say if the mm. church can't survive in a living room or a backyard, it won't survive in a sanctuary or a fellowship hall. Amen. Like, like people want 
high touch, yes. strong, deep relationships. Yes. But they also need to be able to leverage the technology and the things we've learned. You know, no, I said no one's going to tolerate driving into church in a rainstorm for a bad two-hour committee meeting when you've got Zoom, Zoom now. now. Like, That's so right. you're going to rethink many things. I don't know so why I would I ever go learning. to any committee meeting ever. <laughs> exactly. The, cra the crack of is how much stuff we did that now we right? know we don't need to I do. know. Right, right? And I could so, just put my stupid face picture up there and halfway pay attention. It's the greatest <laughs> thing in the world. <laughs> I, 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 love, I love the high-tech, high-touch because yeah, the two things I noticed here lately at, at Chapelwood is just the really overwhelming good. investment in, in digital technology and video yeah, and yeah. all this stuff. And yet, um, next weekend, no, two weekends, uh, Sunday in my backyard, I'm going to have, we're going to have a group of guys in beers, about 20, 25 guys, mm -hmm. just to say, dude, we, we just need to catch up. We just need to be yeah. together. Yeah. And, and I can see now there's, that's not been something that I've always thought that I really needed to do. I mean, I knew it was important, but now it's like, I need, I need I it as it. much as anyone else yeah. needs it. Yeah, and it's yeah, just exactly. what we're supposed to be about. Yeah. And I've already had a couple of guys go, this is awesome. <laughs> Count me in. I'm yeah. coming. Yeah. You know, so I just, like you said, I love the backyard as much as the, um, the high tech. We, we, we've got to figure out it's not either or it's both. And yeah. Yeah. I think and the, the other part of that is something I learned from Ray Anderson um, in terms of just the core part of our theology of the incarnation, that there's no substitute for flesh, right? At the yeah. end of the day, um, I realize that Zoom has diminishing returns after a year. Mm -hmm. But when I'm, yep. when I'm, when I hold the hand of a person in a, you know, there's something feeling that heartbeat that makes me more human and alive. There's just no substitute for flesh. And if we can, yeah. if we can figure that out and hold that tension between how do we do technology better and how do we provide more places for high touch better? I think that we can yep. make our way forward in a, in a more human way. Mm. Well, and one of the things, you know, we've learned a lot about online education is that online education, Zoom is actually the worst form of online education. What you really want is online education that says, let's get there, let's use our technology and then we'll go back into our contexts. Yes. And we'll go back to the, like, so whatever we, so I always said that what we learned was your context is more important than our campus. It's way better for you to stay in your context the conversation we can have across contexts you couldn't have um, without technology. Yeah, so how do we create conversations across contexts that are meant to be lived out in context? Hmm. And so it's why, you know, we, you and I yeah. on the same faculty, we were always in these, these blue jeans conversations, but every time I came to Houston, I grabbed you for coffee because yeah, I yeah, wanted to spend yeah. time with you, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that conversation, that combination that is going to be the future where we are able to be more embedded and have more diversity across context and learn together in ways Beautiful. we wouldn't otherwise be able to. Hey, so as soon as the, the as soon as California allows you to leave your house, <laughs> your room. you you are welcome to come visit us in Houston. We will we will awesome. we'll we'll go eat a nice meal and have some coffee and we're, and we'll just, uh, we're know, coming for you, Todd. It'd be great, but <laughs> I mean, I don't know when California is planning on letting you leave your house. So I mean, it's up to it's up to you. 
it'll really depend. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you know, it could be you know. Hey, as far as Ca- hey, you know, we have to just make these jokes because we're from Texas. But you know, as far as exactly. California, pandemic may be over, and they still might not let you leave your house for all. I don't exactly. Know. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, my daughter lives in Austin, so at least it's, I've got a halfway. That's uh, but hey, like, hey, just just go. just for the record, Austin <laughs> is just California within Texas. I, Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but we still claim it we claim it yeah we're not giving it up exactly. good tacos and good music yeah. you know oh man oh man yeah. well man come see us sometime i would love to spend more time with you and just uh just enjoyed talking with you today and looking forward to reading your your next book too the name of it again yeah. is tempered resilience. tempered tempered resilience. resilience yeah yeah i'm excited to read that one i think that's actually that that's i think something we all need mm-hmm. todd yeah. thanks so much You're thank a gift. you yeah, good to be with both you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, blessings on you. So awesome, writing books and saying smart things. Love people like that. But I mean, I always love when I hear people like that. It's like, yeah, I wanted to write a book about that, but I wasn't smart enough to be able to figure that out. You guys are very. You guys remind me of each other when I'm around Tim and around you. You're, there's a certain there's a certain vibe and DNA that y'all share that I think I, I would love to bring him down. And we just, need to do that just develop a relationship because he is really accessible. I, I texted him a couple weeks ago and just said, Hey, is this costing me money texting you now that you've written three books and you know, they're all in the stratosphere. <laughs> right. and, he, and he, I'm like, cause if it does, let me well, know. Well, he also likes you. So yeah. So well, I that. mean, he's, I, yeah. So I wouldn't want anybody listening to this podcast to just think you can just die. You gotta oh, be Matt Russell. Yeah. Well, you gotta I, be able I, to do Matt Russell things. I, I have a relationship with him. That's, but I mean, you don't, you never know. It wasn't like, like we shared a lot of, we shared a lot of time together, but I, you know, when he moved and I moved here and all these kind of things happened, I, you know, you don't know if those things continue on, but I think he could be a mentor. He could be one of those folks in that, that, uh, you know, the categories of mentors. Mm. Well, that was fun. What do we have next week? One year anniversary of Oh, that's podcast. right. Is our one year anniversary, Matt. Happy anniversary. Hey. Boo. John. Hey, <laughs> happy anniversary, boo. Boo thing. I don't know what to do with that, John. This has been such this has been such a great year to be with you. Just, Can I say this? It's helped it go by. I was telling my I was telling somebody that like I feel like whatever this has been this year in the podcast, I've gotten to know you and in a way that I don't think if we weren't in pandemic would have happened. So are you saying you're turning in your resignation? Not at all. I'm saying okay. more. I'm so stoked to be in this community and I'm so stoked. Well, that we are all glad that community. you're here too. I just, I can I say whether this makes it on the podcast or not. I just, I continue to think, I mean, I, I love the way you think and create structure that allows me to kind of do crazy, not crazy, but the things that I do in a way that, and I think that I've, I mean, I, I trust who you are as a leader. When I hear um, Todd speak, I think, okay, this is a lot like the way John thinks, and and um, and we're going to be okay. Like God has given us what we need in this community to grieve the past and to move into the future that He's called us to, right? Mm-hmm. And I I constantly hear that from from you, and that gives me then this kind of crazy thing that I wake up in the middle of the night going, I wonder, I wonder if we what would it look like, you know? And um, I just, I feel a lot of gratitude about um, being here this last year. 
Well, I like the I like the idea of the prototype. I mean, yeah. honestly, yeah. Yeah. if you look at our the core values of Chapelwood, one of them is that we are a risk taking congregation. Yes. That is not something we aspire to. No, it is something we have We've always done. been from yeah. twenty plus years ago, twenty two years ago, birthing a Mercy Street community on our campus in the neighborhood that we're in. Uh, that you were integral as the founding that. And I think back then, you know, there was a time not long before that when churches didn't even want AA groups meeting in their building. Yeah, we were having fights about, at that time, if you remember, across the country about um, contemporary worship wars, right? Mm-hmm. And and I love the fact that this church is like, that's not a conversation we're having. You know, we don't know what we're doing. This is not about this or that. It's about how do we remain faithful to what God's called us to. Yeah. So that's been in our DNA. So yeah. I, I think that fits right in our identity. So when that's we right. come out of this and we want to be risk takers, we want to do experiment, we want to trial and error, that's right in, that's right in our wheelhouse. Amen. We've always been, the Chapwood's always been that. Yeah. So, well, I'm excited about next week. We'll maybe recap episodes and... <laughs> Kind of just live in that. And, and then the week after, we have Justin Posey from... Justin Posey, who does digital arts and social media and comms for Jesus Culture. That'll be fun, too. Yeah, yeah. All right, Jeff. Thank you, Pro. Are you on camera? Make sure you're on camera when I say the out. Here we go. I'm John Stevens. And I'm Matt Russell. And you are... Jeff Wood. And this is Pod Have Mercy. <laughs>